Okay, good morning. We're going to get started here in just a second. We've got a lot to cover today. Give everybody a chance to get in here and sit down real quick. <clears throat> All right. So today, um, well, first let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Open up my stuff here so we can get ready to go. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll get started here. Oh, I've got mostly people on this right-hand side of the room today. I'll have to <laughs> keep my vision. All right, Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for, though it's a cold day, Lord, that we can come here to worship you. Uh, Lord, that um, I pray that your word would be understood this morning, Lord, that we would be able to think through these issues uh, on social justice, Lord, as we read uh, some excerpts about slavery and about feminism. Lord, that you would help us to understand how those things are... Uh, how slavery in and of itself is contrary to your word, but also how it's being used today as a, as a hammer against Christians and against everyone, um, that it's also being misunderstood and misrepresented. I pray the same things with regard to the feminist quotes that are in this chapter. I pray that we would understand those in light of your word. Uh, God, help us to apply what we learn. Help us to think through how we live in front of the world and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. First thing I want to do is give um, a definition from last week that I didn't think I made clear. One thing I misquoted, and then one thing I didn't make clear. It's in reference to the, uh, the stuff that I read about cultural hegemony. So when I said that Antonin Gramsci, um, I said the fall of the Soviet Union. What I meant was the rise of the Soviet Union was his timing, and the lack of the fall of Western capitalism was why he was trying to figure out why Marxism didn't succeed. So there's a slight difference there. I just misquoted it, wanted to correct that. And then I wanted to give you a definition uh, quickly, uh, a succinct definition of the idea of cultural hegemony, and tell you that you can also use this term with, uh, interchangeably with the idea of critical theory. It's essentially the same thing. They have the same root. It says, cultural hegemony, this is uh, from an article, a left-leaning uh, website. It says, cultural hegemony refers to domination or rule maintained through ideological or cultural means. Okay, so domination or rule maintained through ideological or cultural means. So ideological things can be things like law. Cultural things, can, that can also relate to culture. And that can also mean institutions, which is why we saw those two ways in which Anton and Gramsci presented uh, in order to change society or demolish institutions. He, that was a goal. They had the full frontal assault, which is what we're seeing now, and then the more insidious forms, which sought to uh, subtly control institutions, which I mentioned happened through uh, the Frankfurt School, uh, some men who came from Germany, and they instituted their uh, critical theory, which is actually, they, they're the ones who coined that term, okay, with the ideas from Anton and Gramsci. And they presented critical theory in the Ivy League schools in the Northeast, and that disseminated itself out through all of higher education eventually. So that they, in my mind, have succeeded in what their goals were in undoing the societal precepts, the norms that we have in order to achieve their ends. That's what's been happening, okay? So any questions about that? I just want to give that a little blurt. That's a continuation from last week. Wanted to make sure that I, I cleared that up since I misspoke. Okay. Any questions about that? Okay. So this week, um, we, had two, we had a question last week with regard to how do we apply, how do we apply the things that we're talking about? Well, I've been going over application questions uh, throughout the chapters, one of the things about following another author's format is that you have to decide where you can fit in certain types of application, right? So we're going through uh, the linear thought by, by Mr. Williams here and the way that he's presenting social justice. And I, along the lines, I've mentioned things like marriage, like education, like gender roles and those sorts of things. Those are application points. But what I realized maybe uh, after talking with some people is that possibly you guys aren't seeing the connections that I see with those things. 
So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to take each chapter that we do, and then I'm going to have an application section. I will try to relate it to the particular chapter, because we're still going to cover the things in the chapter that, that are given. I'll try to relate it to the chapter, but I'm also going to talk about specifically those things that I've mentioned, and I'm going to go over the scriptures that are associated with them. I am not sure how long this double... It's not going to be two separate lessons. They're going to be interrelated because social justice has to do with these things. But I want to show you how they have to do with these things. Because it is my contention that we can't actually deal with social justice in an evangelistic manner, which is what we're going to do also, okay? We can't actually deal with social justice in an evangelistic manner if we don't first clean up our house also, okay? We first have to clean up our own piety, our own families, and our own churches then we can move forward in that way. And the reason is because social justice is essentially um, a false religion that has grown up in the stead or in the absence of Christians being truly salt and light in terms of their adherence to the Word of God at large in this country. Okay, It grew up in the place of an absence Okay, it grew up in the place of an absence. So go ahead and open your books to chapter 5. That's where we're going to start this week. But again, I'm going to try to do the application thing, but you guys have to give me several weeks to do that, okay? Because I'm going to continue to try to be faithful to doing a chapter a week so that we can make it through the whole book. Chapter 5. First page on chapter 5 is going to be the first thing that we talk about. So I'm going to move quickly so that we can get to both sections. I'm going to read here. So this, this question is about division. This question is about division. Does our, social, uh, does our vision, the question, it's the splintering question in chapter 5, does our vision of social justice embrace divisive propaganda? We're going to try to delineate between who is divisive and who is not, and what is the nature of being divisive and what is not the nature of being divisive. Okay. What is the nature of being divisive and what is not the nature of being divisive? The last paragraph on page 54 says, We find three common marks in terms of propaganda and its ability to divide, okay? One, propaganda offers a highly edited history that paints the most damning picture it can can of a given people group. Two, it encourages us to treat individuals as neighbor individual neighbors as exemplars of their damnable group. Three, it gives us a way to blame all of life's troubles on that damnable group and its members. This has been precisely the logic used to oppress black people throughout history. Read the propaganda behind the 20th century genocides and you will find the same three marks. Okay, so We're going to flip over to page 55 here. So he sees those three points, and each one of these points has its own subheading. So rather than continuing to read right there or giving an explanation, I'm going to let him give his explanation of it. So the first one here is damning revisionist histories. So by revisionist, he means a reinterpretation of history that is not based on fact. That's what revisionism is, okay? We see a lot of that today in our culture. There's omission. You You can revise by omission. So he may say, in other words, one side may say some things that are true, but they're going to omit omit particular parts so that they can push their own narrative. It allows you to twist those things. And we're going to actually see that in terms of slavery. This is, he quotes Thomas Sowell here, which, by the way, if you are looking for an author on social justice, he doesn't, I, don't, I don't necessarily know that Thomas Sowell is a Christian, but he writes with such clarity and logic I mean, he is probably my favorite author on the subject, okay? His book, The Quest for Cosmic Justice, just the one chapter, it's either nine or ten, is worth ten copies of the book alone, okay? The Quest for Cosmic Justice. He also has a, uh, a book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals, where he explains, uh, and he's an African-American um, economist who uh, grew up in Harlem and has a PhD from Stanford, if I'm not mistaken. And so... He has another, in that book, Black Rednecks and and White Liberals, he talks about the ideological bent of each uh, people group and goes into the history of them. 
There's another one called Intellectuals in Society, which is also excellent, where he talks about the elitist mentality and how everyone has to be an expert before they can comment on any particular thing. I can't recommend him as an author enough. I've not read, I'm sure there's something out there that I would dislike, you know, because no one agrees with anyone 100% of the time, just like I'm sure that you all don't agree with me 100% of the time. But the, um, as far as his commentary on a lot of the ills we see today, his books are excellent. Okay, now that I've given him a nice uplift there and encouraged you to buy his books, let's read some of the stuff he says. Thomas Sowell documents. Now, this is about halfway down uh, page 55. I'm going to start reading the bullet points. Thomas Sowell documents some of these in the real history of slavery. Remember, um, slavery, according to today's society, is a white man's game, right? It's a white man's game. The only people who've ever perpetrated it according to what you hear in the media, are uh, Anglo-Saxon, Euro-white people. That's it, okay? So let's see. Slavs were so, the first bullet point. Slavs were so widely used as slaves in both Europe and the Islamic world that the very word slave derived from the word for Slav, not only in English but also in other European languages as well as Arabic. China, in centuries past, has been described as one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. Slavery was also common in India, where it is estimated that there were more slaves than in the entire Western Hemisphere. Slavery was also an established institution in the Western Hemisphere before Columbus ships ever appeared on the horizon. Remember revisionist history. You don't hear any of this when you listen to uh, social media or mainstream media talk about slavery. You just don't hear it at all. And these are facts. While slavery was common to all civilizations, only one civilization developed moral revulsion against it, very late in its history. That is Western civilization. Themselves, the leading slave traders of the 18th century, Europeans nevertheless became, in the 19th century, the destroyers of slavery around the world. That's a convenient fact that is left out of this narrative constantly. Okay? The British stamped out slavery, not only throughout the British Empire, but also by its pressures and actions against other nations, including Brazil, Sudan, Zanzibar, the Ottoman Empire, and the Western Africa, often at the great loss of British lives and money. Well, why did they do this? They did this because they had a Christian worldview. Okay? Go back and read its history. We don't have time to go into all that right now. But don't forget these facts as you're thinking about slavery. Don't let people purposely put you into guilt that only white people enslave other people. Slavery is a human problem. Okay? Slavery is a human problem. Americans stamped out slavery, not only in America itself, but also in the Philippines. The Dutch stamped it out in Indonesia. Notice that these are all European countries that are helping stamp this out, okay, that are constantly maligned in the media as being the only and biggest perpetrators of slavery. That does not diminish the disgustingness of chattel slavery in America, okay? That doesn't diminish that, but we need a full picture so that we just don't blame one group of people, right? need a full picture so we don't blame one group of people, uh, the Russians in Central Asia, says the French in their West African and Caribbean colonies, the Westerners who stamped out slavery did so over the bitter opposition of Africans, Arabs, Asians, and others. On, on the issue of slavery, it was essentially Western civilization against the world. And why? Because Western civilization, though not Christian in its entirety, was founded upon a Christian worldview. The assumption of truth the uh, paradigms of morality were assumed in how the society was developed, okay? I mean, that's why I think it's John Adams who said, our constitution is only fit for a moral and religious people. And now that we've jettisoned our morality and our religion and the, the Christian capital that we had built up as a nation, you see where we are headed. There's constant attacks on our constitution and, and the rule of law, Okay? All right. It says, moreover, within Western civilization, so the last bullet point, the principal impetus for the people who would, uh, who would today be considered the religious right, I'm sorry, 
Moreover, within Western civilization, the principal impetus for the abolition of slavery came first from very conservative religious activists, people who would today be considered the, quote, religious right. Clearly, this story is not politically correct in today's terms. Hence, it is ignored. It is ignored as if it never happened. All right. Revisionist history. It's a thing, okay? Uh, they will ignore um, things that hurt their narrative. Okay? They will ignore things that hurt their narrative. Omission is still bearing false witness. Okay? Omission is bearing false witness. This is breaking that commandment constantly on the, on the social justice side of things. Okay? Now, individuals as group exemplars, and here they're going to talk about feminism. Okay? I want you guys to pay attention to this table here. This table is really good, and the reason it's really good is because it shows how feminists damn all men in what they write, okay? And he compares it to uh, tribal, uh, tribal warfare in Africa and how one tribe used uh, damning media and propaganda in order to commit genocide on another group of people. It, it, you just, it's perfect. I really like this table, okay? I really like this table. It says, here in the land, um, this is the, the first point. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the feminist side because we're not in Africa and the other side doesn't apply, but please read that. If you didn't read anything else out of this chapter, this table and Thomas Sowell's quotes are worth your time, Okay? All right, so here in the land of legislatively legitimated toxic masculinity, is it really so illogical to hate men? But we're not supposed to hate them all, but we're not supposed to hate them because hashtag not all men. But when they have gone low for all of human history, listen to this, when they've gone low for all of human history, maybe it's time for us to go all Thelma and Louise and Foxy Brown on their collective butts, which is to say... Uh, destroy them, okay? All right, men should, next, next one, pledge to vote for feminist women only. Don't run for office. Don't be in charge of anything. Step away from the power. We got this. Well, according to the word of God, uh, women in leadership over a country is a judgment. Just read Isaiah. It's a judgment from God. It's not a blessing. It's a judgment from God, okay? Same thing with women in military, if you want to talk about that. And I'm talking about combat roles in military. Not ancillary roles, but combat roles in the military. Same, Word of God speaks of those things in the same way. Okay? Growing movements challenge a masculinity built on domination and violence, and to engage boys and men in feminism are both gratifying and necessary. Please continue. And please know that your crocodile tears won't be wiped away by us anymore. You have done us wrong. Hashtag because patriarchy. It is long past time to play hard for team feminism and win. Okay, I just want you guys to think about those things. And ask yourselves, who is being divisive? Who is being divisive? Okay, that's not to say that men have not perpetrated incredibly wrong things in history. Just look at the 20th century. Look at Adolf Hitler. Look at uh, Lenin. Look at Stalin. Look at all these men, okay? Look at the, uh, the Nazi soldiers who carried the Jews off to uh, the concentration camps. Weak, terrible men who did not stand up for true justice. Weak, terrible men who did not stand up for true justice. Look at those who perpetrated chattel slavery in America, weak and terrible men who did not stand up for true justice, okay, that, that are standing in front of God if they did not repent before the end of their life and trust in Christ, are standing before God in judgment for eternity right now, okay? Half of you probably have never even heard of peonage in, the, uh, in America, which consisted of the slavery of African Americans through lawful means post-abolition, Okay, they would trump up charges on um, African Americans, put them in prison, and then farmers and local men in the South would hire out the workers 
uh, the, the African-American men from them, and they would abuse them way worse than when they were slaves because they could just talk to the uh, warden of the next prison and gather another one if they died after they beat them to death. And that lasted up until the 40s. So don't, don't, don't misunderstand me when I talk about these sorts of things as though I'm not aware of and don't think it's disgusting, because I do, okay? Uh, so does the Bible. It clearly teaches that man-stealers are to be put to death. Okay, that includes the Africans who took their own Africans into slavery and then sold them to the Europeans who did it as well. Okay, so biblical law, biblical precedent, what do we do with these things? Remember how we took our first two lessons, the sufficiency of Scripture and what does the law of God say? Okay, so next page. I'll keep on rolling here because I want to get to those other points. This is a section, um, he, he goes on here, and I would encourage you to read the third paragraph down on page 58. For the sake of time, I'm going to keep on rolling here because I think it's pretty illustrate, it, it illustrates itself. There's enough said from that table um, how feminists deal with men and how wrong the way that they look at things is. And when I say feminist, I mean every wave of feminism. I mean from the first foundation Till now, every single bit of it is unbiblical. Every single bit of it is found on a faulty foundation. Does that mean that, they, that there weren't a few good things that they accomplished? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that didn't happen. What I'm saying is the root is evil. The root is evil. Okay? The root is evil. Go back and read them. The subjugation. There's a, they hated marriage. They immediately started tying child-rearing and, and the birth of children to bondage. Just without going into a long diatribe about that. Just go back and take some time to read them. All right. So the last paragraph. This is going to be a point of contention that I have with him. The last point, uh, I don't think this is correct, in other words. So page 58, the last paragraph here. He says, to the first charge, yes, I am a big hypocrite. He's talking about how can you critique. People are critiquing him for critiquing them. Does that make you a hypocrite? You're, telling them, you're saying that these people groups who let feminists and so forth and so on, people who embrace critical race theory, are, uh, are bad. Well, doesn't that make you a hypocrite because you just said we shouldn't do that? Well, here's what, here was his response. To the first charge, yes, I am a big hypocrite. We all are. He's right in that, in a sense. I fail to live up to God's standards of justice, goodness, and consistency every day. Amen. That doesn't change God's truth, though. It says, Thank God my identity does not rest on my ability to measure up because I have no such ability. To the second, no, I am not doing the same thing as those I am critiquing. I am critiquing their ideas, not their gender or skin tone. We should never call for hatred or unfriending or use of a morally charged word like coward to generalize. Okay. I think I'm getting what he's trying to say in this, but how many of you have heard the word coward used in the Bible? Can anybody think of where that is? Um, well, it's actually in Revelation. Yeah, so Revelation 21, verse 8 uh, says that, well, it's 21, verses 5 through 8. It says, and he, this is Jesus talking. This is where I want us to be careful. Because I think there's an implicit assumption in what he says that somehow your niceness can convince. And what I mean by niceness is lack of clarity, lack of use of, of quote-unquote charged words, um, can somehow convince a person who accepts this ideology that you're not against them. What he misses is, is, is their entire ideology is tied up in their gender is tied up in their sexual preferences, is tied up in everything that they think. They can't separate it. Therefore, it doesn't matter how nice you are in that sense. I'm not calling, again, for us to qualify that, to stand there and scream at somebody, to, uh, to stand there and call them a bunch of different names and stuff like that. But I do want us to be able to use biblical words to call particular sins that God says people will go to hell for toward them to call them to repentance. Right? 
Isn't that what God calls us to do? Let's, let's read for, uh, Revelation 21, 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is, again, Jesus talking. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of, the water, of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, verse 8. But listen, listen to this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I, I just don't understand how someone can say we can't use quote unquote morally charged words against people that God plainly says they'll be damned for. Because Jesus does this too. In John chapter 8, he says this. He says, uh, if, if God were your father, he's talking to the Jews there, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's, he's calling them murderers. The whole people group there. Go over to Matthew, I think it's Matthew 23-ish, 22, where he indicts all of the Pharisees, calling them vipers, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, publicly does that. Think about the fact when Jesus overturns the money-changing tables in the Temple Mount. Do you got, I don't know if you guys realize that that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's roughly an acre worth of land. And he drove them out with whips. And I'm not calling us for physical violence or anything like that. But I am saying we ha there's, a, there's an implicit assumption. Remember the 11th commandment that I talked about? You shall be nice and forget all the other ten. There's an implicit assumption in Christianity, in the Christian culture of today... That, that political correctness will grant, grant others repentance. And that's just not how it happens. Political correctness doesn't grant repentance. The Spirit of God does. And if we're not we're willing to actually call sin by the, its biblical name, okay, how God calls it, then we can't... How could we call people to life in Christ? They must stand condemned before they can be saved. Okay, they must stand condemned before they can be saved. This is plain teaching of Scripture. Jesus indicts these people, calling to them to repentance all the time. Literally, after his first sermon, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Stephen, read his, uh, his the, he's the first martyr of the church, post-Christ. Look at his sermon in chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, you've always killed the prophets. I mean, it's again and again and again in Scripture. I don't think that we need to go out and hang and hold signs up and tell every, it, like uh, Westboro Baptist Church did, and I think still does if they have more than three members now, and, and tell everybody that they're going to hell automatically and all this other sorts of stuff. Relationally, though, you have to be willing to point out other people's sin and call them to repentance. Otherwise, what are they repenting of? And cowardice is a sin that's damnable according to the Scripture. So I'm not sure how he justifies that statement, okay? I'm not sure how he justifies that statement, other than to say that our cultural milieu assumes that this is how you're going to win people. Niceness and kindness are not an unwillingness to say plain things. Homosexuality is another term that has been moved into that. I don't know if you guys realize it or not, but homosexuality was pushed by people who wanted to promote the normativity of homosexual behavior. The biblical word for it is sodomy. And that was the word that was always used. It's called cultural jamming. You can Google that if you would like, okay? There's a, articles out there about that. They literally purposed to do this. And we've bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I'm not saying that he would agree with that particular way of it, but an unwillingness to use biblical words for biblical outline sins is... A, uh, is going to get us nowhere. It's not, it's not helpful, and it's not biblical. And so that would be my contention with that particular part. Now the last one, 
The third, this is blaming life's troubles on a damnable group. And then I'm going to try to get into the particular points of application like I talked about because some people had asked for that. I'm going to try to draw some parallels between how we live our lives as Christians and how that affects social justice, okay? Because last week, uh, I think it was Keith and then uh, also uh, Jeremy asked questions about how do we apply this to non-Christians or in what ways do we relate to non-Christians. And I want to make sure we get that. Again, that's going to take several weeks to do as we do a chapter and then that partially, but we're going we're to start that today. So, page 59 says, Now we come to the third mark of propaganda, scapegoating. Once we have rewritten history to demonize a given people group and trained our eyes to see the horns on the heads of individuals in that group, the final step is to blame life's problems and troubles on them. If you go back to the last chapter and you read James Cone's paragraphs where he's quoted, this is exactly what he does with white people. Okay, this is the ten- these are the tenets of critical theory. These are the tenets of cultural hegemony. They look at any institutionalized norm. At, if it creates any, any, quali- any, any inequality of outcome, then therefore it cannot be anything but oppressive. Okay, and it cannot be anything but that people group, whoever's associated with it, white, rich, heterosexual, okay? Um, It cannot be anything but that people group's attempt to suppress and oppress others. There's no standard. They start to eat themselves eventually because who's more oppressed? Is Is it the sodomite who's also black? Who also uh, grew up poor? Or is it just the woman over here who grew up poor? Which one is it? Well, that's where you come into the idea of intersectionality, which I'll define at a later point. Okay? The more intersections of oppression you pass through, the more truth you have inherently. And so that's how, they, that's how those terms come about. That's a side point, and we'll get to that at a later point. All right. Flip over one more page. This, is, this I like, and then we're going to flip. Then we're going to kind of go into uh, what I was saying earlier. The truth is that because Genesis three, this is the second paragraph down. The truth is that because Genesis three happened, because we are fallen creatures inhabiting a fallen cosmos, life is hard. The problem of evil is not just a Christian theologian's problem; it is everyone's problem because it comes from everyone. The unexpected brutality, the unrelenting pain, the seeming absurdity and senseless of so much suffering are realities we all try to come to terms with somehow. The only thing that can ground those realities so that you can understand and deal with them is a recognition that we live in a fallen world because we sinned against a holy God. Okay? We sinned against a holy and righteous God who is loving and caring and a friend of sinners, but simultaneously, because he is holy, hates sin, hates it, cannot coexist with it at all. That's why Jesus had to die. God did not just forget your sin. Christ was literally, eternally, wrathfully punished by the Father for you. God's justice has to be satisfied. So we need both of those things. We have to be grounded in God's word, okay, about what evil is and is not by an objective standard. Do you see how we can't form any idea of how to live our life unless we have a truly objective standard outside of ourselves, meaning God and how he created the world and his word as revealed to us? Otherwise, we end up into he said, she said, I'm more oppressed than you, you're my problem, Individual responsibility falls at the feet of sinners before a holy God first. Okay? First. If you can't start with that and your need of reconciliation to him through Christ, then you've got nothing to build on. You can't build a family. You can't build a society. You can't function. You can only function as an animal would function, which is based on your emotion. Okay? Any questions about that? All right, I'm going to flip over to my application section. Now, 
Why have I mentioned? Why have I mentioned things like education, things like marriage, things like church worship, and those sorts of things? This is going to be the section where I try to apply that for the next few weeks. Okay, I'm going to try to make it make sense because if I've not done a good job being clear, that's on me. Okay. I'm going to be as plain as possible about this, but I want to make sure that you guys understand where I come from with this. So, building off of what we were just saying, it is my contention, in light of Christ's call to Christians to be salt and light in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that false things grow up in the absence or diminishment of true things. And darkness increases and overwhelms where light fades and fails to be bright. If there's not a substantial root being nourished by those who stand tall on God's word, then truth can and will be choked out of a society. Okay? Social justice has views that reach into every area of life, down even to the idea of what is or is not a male or a female. It only creates views on fundamental things which are unknown to God's word, but also goes on offense in the application of them. To society. So it creates things that are abhorrent to God's word, that are opposite, but, it, but it, they do a better job than us in many ways. They are willing to go to levels that we cannot go, bearing false witness and upending the very nature of truth. We can't do that. That's not what I mean by better at it. But we have the light and they do not. Okay? We have the light and they do not. It is my intention to say that they believe what they believe better and more strongly on a lot of levels than Christians do. They are willing to speak out about their beliefs more than generally speaking Christians are. They are willing to go to the media about what they believe more than Christians are. They are willing to push their agenda into schools more than Christians are, generally speaking. I don't know what each one of you do on your days off, but I know this is true in our culture. Okay, It is absolutely true in our culture. They push their their views of marriage. They push their views of rearing children. They understand that education is important. Why do you think there are continually laws trying to take apart homeschool and Christian and private education? Just look at that if you're wondering why, okay? So it's my contention that the church is upstream, not downstream from culture. The culture follows the church. It takes its cues on how to live from us. That isn't to say we come up with the ungodly ideologies which set themselves up against God, but it is to say if we have the truth and fail to live it and declare it, then we are responsible. This, means to be, this is what it means to be salt and light. When we see children whose hearts are bound up with folly, acting in entire disrespect to their parents and everyone around them, we don't immediately look at them, but we look at their parents. Because we understand, those who do, we understand that parents, at least should, have greater wisdom and are called to direct those who don't. Okay? That's true of Christians in this society. We should be people who have greater wisdom than those around us. And we should be applying that to when we talk. I just had a conversation last week with a, 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 a co-worker who's not married and who has another child on the way with a person that she's having problems with. I said, the first thing I went to, well, a biblical ideal is this. You don't have to be angry toward the person. You can explain to them. You can call them to what the biblical ideal is. Her, her, Her response to me was, I should have known that's what you would say. The, the, the other thing is, is like, I've been in the middle of a conversation in, in the OR before, and I, about right-leaning people, okay? So it's not just left-leaning people who want the blessings that come with a Christian society but don't want Christ as their king. They don't want to submit to them. I've said in the middle of the OR before, not because I, want, I don't want any praise from you all, like, but I've said child or abortion is child sacrifice. It's modern child sacrifice, said that to a surgeon in the middle of an operation once. It's not, it's not that we have to be mean and hateful. We don't have to be mean and hateful. It's that we just have to have a backbone. We have to believe God's word. You have to say those things at risk to yourself. Okay, we've got 15 minutes to go over the first tenet here. 
which is individual piety. Individual piety. If we maintain piety, and what I mean by piety is godliness, godliness in inner life and in outer life. Christianity is not just an inward religion. It bleeds out. Look at Acts chapter 19. The whole of Ephesus was thrown into a riot because their monetary freedom, their monetary gain, the things that they had were thrown into loss. Why? Because the gospel said, taught Christians that we shouldn't buy these things, these false things that we do. Okay, so anyway, individual piety. First thing, and these are going to be simple things, which is why we're not going to spend a ton of time on them. We're going to do piety in marriage. We're going to do church worship, what that should look like. And we're going to uh, talk about eventually evangelism and how to do that using the law of God. Okay? First, we've got to clean up our house, though. Yearly, read your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Okay, if you indeed, this is a pretty simple thing. I think everybody in this room that I know personally knows that we need to be in the Word of God on a regular basis, right? If we aren't regularly seeking the Word of God in our lives, we will have no power to confront and evangelize those who stand in opposition to Christ. We will also have no power to live out godly lives in and of ourselves in front of the Lord who expects that of us. The word of Christ is the means by which the lost among us are saved, Romans 10, 14 through 17, and the means by which we as believers are sanctified, John 17, 17. That means we are made more holy. Okay, the second tenet, regularly praying. Regularly praying. Matthew 6, 8 through 13. This is the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to... I want you to think about what it assumes. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows that, that you have need of these things before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. What does that assume? It assumes you're going to pray. It assumes that you are regularly going to pray. It assumes that you are not going to heap up continuous repetitions in the form of ungodliness, as though your words would be heard for those things, but that you would continuously pray to the Father in light of the model prayer that we have in Matthew 6. James 5, 13 through 16, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now, some of your translations say hymns, but the word is actually psalms. Okay? Psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. And then verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It accomplishes things. It's the means by which God makes himself known. Prayer, then, is the recognition of what we profess in at least two ways. There are probably more. First, that God is all-knowing in that he hears our prayers and receives them gladly through the intercession of Christ sanctifying them and through the Holy Spirit teaching us how to pray in the will of God. Secondly, he is all-powerful. He not only hears our prayers, but has the power to act upon them. And further, when he does, we know those actions are both every time he acts either when he acts in not answering or answering, okay? We know those actions are both entirely holy and entirely for our good and ultimately are for his glory. We should be on our knees. If you feel hopeless, go to God in prayer. Go to God in prayer. Just write down four or five set things to pray for, your family, uh, your church, your personal prayer life, just put them on a note card. And every time you open your Bible in the morning, spend some time praying those things. Third thing, this is the last thing that I'll cover today. Regular worship attendance. Regular worship attendance. You cannot skip church on a regular basis for sports events, for recitals, and for everything else and expect the culture to notice a difference in how Christians worship. I didn't say 
every Sunday, although I would lean toward every Sunday you should be in church, and there should be nothing that pulls you away from worship in that way, okay? You guys have to decide what you, th- what you think the scriptures teach about the Sabbath and its required holiness and rest on that day. What does it say, though? It says, therefore, brothers, this is Hebrews chapter 19, verses 19, um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And listen, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I, I tell you, but I would actually say that if you miss church for those things, that's not okay. I'm going to land a little harder on that. That's my conviction. You do with that what you will. That is my conviction that if we miss church for those things, we are not honoring God in the way that he would want us to honor him in that way. If you all would like to talk about that from the scriptures, we could do that afterward, okay? 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen says this, For in the first place, when you come together as a church. So what's the assumption there? That you will come together as a church, right? You will come together as a church. You will not neglect those things. That's a command from Scripture. We don't have to move very far to infer those things. So when I have mentioned things in the past, as we've gone over social justice, think about what it would be like, literally, if all commerce on a Sunday stopped. And what a witness that would be to an unbelieving world. Just think for a moment. Okay? Think for a moment. Sabbath worship is essential to living a holy life. In a world where we are constantly having things demanded of our time, where social media allows people and families to portray themselves to other people and other families as perfect, we need to rest in our God and have a regular time of abstinence from those things that pull our mind in a thousand different directions. We have to learn again how to delight Ourself in God. How to delight ourselves in God. Okay? How to delight ourselves in God. Those are my application points for this week. That's individual piety. There are other things tied into that. There, there are many other things we could mention. Those are three basic things that, given the time constraints that we have, that are essential for the Christian life. Okay? essential from the Christian life. And I hope you see in the scriptures, um, again, I hope you wrote them down. I'll say to you these, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when it comes to reading your Bible. I also mentioned Romans 10, 14 through 17. John 17, 17, in terms of the word. Again, there are many places we could go for that. Psalm 119, Psalm 19. Regularly praying, Matthew 6, 18, 8 through 13. James 5, 13 through 16. Regular attendance in worship. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And then the assumption that is created in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, meaning that you will do that. When you come together as a church, meaning that you will do that. Okay? Next week, we'll talk about family piety. We'll talk about husband's responsibilities, wife's responsibilities, the call of what, what it means to be a husband in a family, the call of what it means to be a wife in the family. We may get the children. I don't know. It depends on how much time we have. Okay? Remember I said, just bear with me for several weeks. These are the application principles that affect social justice. It is my contention that if we fail to be salt and light and live, in a, holy li- live a holy life according to God's word, that false things will draw people away from true things. If we have the truth, we are upstream from culture. And in so much as we fail to proclaim it and live it, culture will follow that ugly path toward ungodliness. Okay? 
The gospel is more powerful than the sinful world. It just is. The death of Jesus Christ is the most powerful thing that has ever happened to to the fallen creation. If it can change your heart, if it can change my heart when I was 18, then it can change everyone's heart. Even even though I am a staunch Calvinist who believes in limited limited atonement or a better word for it, particular redemption, I believe that it is our call to inasmuch as every opportunity presents itself that we look for them and that we call those around us to repentance and faith. Okay? All right. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Yeah. Uh, this goes way back in the beginning. Yes. We have a movie, I think. Okay. My senior mommy. Mm-hmm. Still on regular time. It's not on daylight savings. Oh, that's okay. I forgot about it last night. Okay. Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. It's a biblical book that led the British in the abolition or the. Uh, Wilberfo- Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, I think. Mm hmm. Okay. Okay. Amazing grace. And it is really powerful because, I mean, everything we do, even good like that, is tainted with sin. But it's just, it is excellent on what the battle Britain had. Yeah. Sadly, we were several decades behind them. Yes, absolutely. So that is so what's it called again? Huh? What's it called again, you said? Let me check okay, so it's an Amazing Grace, a movie about how slavery was ended in Britain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Don't ever forget, guys, in, in light of that, that reminded me of something, that your, your offerings to God are always imperfect. But Christ, that doesn't excuse us because Christ's blood will sanctify that to the Father. You know, he always uses imperfect vessels. All right. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and to study your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that this was a fruitful lesson and that they continue to be as we move forward. Uh, Lord, just do with us what you will. Pray for the service today that our hearts would be open to worship. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.